The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 471. the data just is really clear. We spend more and more time alone the older we get. So everything is sort of pushing against us being able to be connected to other people as we age. But even even millennials are are lonely. It's not even just an aging thing. There's a force we encounter every day that we aren't aware of, and it threatens to derail otherwise promising careers and lives. What is it? It's called microstress. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. Each week, we're joined by another successful and inspiring author to talk about his or her latest book and their insights on topics like professional development, leadership, mindset, habits, productivity, business, marketing, and much more. Today, we're being joined by author Karen Dillon. She has co-written a book along with Rob Cross called The Microstress Effect, how little things pile up and create big problems and what to do about it. I'll be asking Karen to share about how your inability to say no could be impacting your stress levels, how to build resilience against the microstress in your life, the impact on your brain of working late and early in the morning, and much, much more. If you haven't already joined us over in the Read to Lead community, I would uh, like to extend an invitation to you to do just that. It is free to join over at jeffbrown.me. And your free membership includes access to things like exclusive content, weekly business book summaries on topics like leadership, productivity, mindset, habits, communication, and more. Curated resources, things like articles that I write, interviews that I conduct, apps that I curate, videos that I create, and much, much more. Plus, community forum access. That's where you get to join right now 370 other people who take personal and professional development as seriously as you do. There'll be a paid tier offered down the line quite soon, in fact. But this level I just described is absolutely free to join. And you get it when you go to jeffbrown.me. Hope to see you inside the Read to Lead community very soon. Again, it's jeffbrown.me. Karen Dillon is an author and former editor at Harvard Business Review magazine and the co-author of three books with Clayton Christensen, including the New York Times bestseller, How Will You Measure Your Life? The Wall Street Journal business bestseller, Competing Against Luck, The Story of Innovation and Customer Choice, and Thinker's 50 Breakthrough Idea Finalist, The Prosperity Paradox. How Innovation Can Lift Nations Out of Poverty. Her new book, co-written with Rob Cross, is called The Microstress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems and What to Do About It. Well, Karen, I'm excited to have you here, having been a fan of your work for years. You've obviously written several books with the late uh, Clay Christensen. I'm a big fan. Thank you for your work and for this new work, The Microstress Effect. I'm excited to have you here today on the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you, Jeff. I'm really glad to be here. 
Well, uh, I've heard terms like microaggression in the news the last few years, but until I saw the cover of your book, I had never heard the term micro stress. So explain to us what micro stress means exactly. And if this term at all differs from just regular old stress. <laughs> I'm happy to do that. And I'll explain why we came up with that term. You probably haven't heard of it because I think we just put a name to something that so many of us are feeling that we didn't have the language to articulate. So micro stresses specifically means routine interactions with other people who we're close to personally or professionally that happen in the course of our day that are so brief but they're tiny and stressful that we barely remember them because they happen so quickly and so routinely, but whose effect cumulatively can be really debilitating. So going about our days, tiny little interactions with people that are just normal things that happen to us that actually layer stress upon stress upon stress. We call these small stresses micro stress, but they add up to something very significant. And the way this is different than regular old stress is regular old stress or macro stress, are, we have language for that. We, we know what we're referring to. It's often a major event in your life, a death of a loved one or a major setback financially or dealing with a health issue. And we have language and we have empathy around that. People know how to support you when you have those things going and we know how to talk about it. Micro stress is so invisible that it literally happens so quickly that our, on our brain, it barely imprints the fight or flight mechanisms that we normally have to deal with stress don't really trigger. So it, it comes in a way all throughout your day that we don't have language for, we don't recognize it's happening, but yet it is layering stress into your body in a way that is really significant over time. Mm. I probably shouldn't criticize my spouse on a podcast that goes around the world, but I don't think she would disagree with me necessarily on the thing I'm about to say. <laughs> and that is, my wife has a very difficult time saying no. She says, yes, yeah, she's a wonderful person and said, would give you the shirt off her back. That's, that's the positive spin on this. Uh, she'll say uh, yes to just about any request from a friend or a family member. But, but how might those who find it difficult to say no, Karen, how might they be impacted even more by microstressors? Well, the kind of insidious thing about microstress is that every individual request or interaction or, or ask of us seems manageable in the moment. We can, of course, help the friend with that favor. We can, of course, do a little extra work because someone was busy at work and we had to pick up the slack. We can, of course, rebound back from a sort of little insult or a stressful conversation that we've been around one by one. But the reality is when we're a yes person and we have those, again, accumulate throughout the day, it's all of those individually seem easy to say yes to in the moment, or I can cope with that, or I'll just pick up, I'll do a little more work. But when we add up with the toll of, of what that's happening to us over the course of the day, and significantly our loved ones, you know, we bring micro stress home, the, the, the secondary and tertiary effects of micro stress are, are very real. So even, for example, if your wife comes home from a busy day at work of saying yes to everybody at work and in our personal life, and you're sitting around the dinner table and it's late and neither of you is able to sort of engage with each other because she, she got a late start coming home and you're not able to have the, a kind of quality conversation about something or you're spewing the, the stress that you each had in your day at each other. Suddenly your relationship's affected too. And it's because of nothing terrible, nothing big, but a lot of little things. And that can still take a really big toll on the people we love as well as in our own lives as well. So someone who's a chronic yes person, which is where we're, where our research started with was high achievers, people who were high, identified by their organizations as high performers who are, by their nature, chronic yes people, right? They're the yes and. They will say yes and keep going mm -hmm. to doing it. But 
we identified in these high performers that in spite of the fact that they were seen that way by their organizations, once you got a little bit below the surface, many of these people were kind of hanging on by a thread. Their, their life was so filled with micro stress and the secondary and tertiary effects of that, uh, that they were really not in a great place. So anyone who's inclined to be a yes person is vulnerable to be in that same category of kind of hanging on by a thread a little more than might seem to be the case on the surface. I don't know if you've had any experience with this uh, directly necessarily, but one of the more practical ways I have found it easier to default to no instead of doing what we often do, and that's what we're talking about here, defaulting to yes, is to build a schedule, sort of an ideal week, if you will, where everything is time blocked, everything I'm I'm working on, I've, I've I've blocked out time to work on projects. I've blocked out time for myself to say, read your awesome book, or what have you. So when I get a request, the first thing I do is I look at my schedule, and oftentimes the thing I'm pitting it against, this request against, might be things where there are appointments with me, but they're still appointments, right? And so if that's an appointment with me that that I feel is worth keeping, I feel okay going to that other person and saying. I, I have an appointment at that time. I'm sorry, I can't do what it is you want me to do. Have, have, have you studied or looked at any other practical sort of methods for just defaulting to no rather than, than, than yes that are sort of similar to that, I guess? Well, I'll tell you a personal one I have, and then I'll tell you some of the things we saw in our research. Personally, I'm a yes person too. <laughs> and I have learned, and because everything seems manageable and exciting and interesting, and I want to say yes to everything. So it's for good reasons. And, and I like those interactions with other people. So I start with the yes coming off my tongue as quickly as possible. But I have um, in the past decade or so gotten better at even just sleeping on it, like just saying, can I get back to you tomorrow? Or um, let me schedule it and, and, and check back with you t- the next day. Or let me just ask these questions, being more inquisitive rather than, rather than the yes being the first thing that comes out of your mouth is getting better at asking questions and putting it in context and understanding why it's important and understanding and discussing what are the resource implications of my time and energy and other people I'll need to of that ask so that at least you're having a conversation with the other person that is really putting the ask really in, in proper context. Um, so as a, as a default mechanism, I try whenever I can to not say yes on the spot, but try to like talk about it the next day when I've had time to think about it. I think what you just mentioned is really important. Keeping your commitments to yourself is really, really important. But what we've seen also in our research is that it's a lot of really well-intentioned people who are just so busy. Um, it's just the way we work together. You know, people, people, no one, it's not a jerk who's asking you to do way more than would be humanly possible. It's another person who's overloaded and needs some help or needs to do a shorthand conversation with you. And we kind of allow ourselves to work that way and communicate that way when that is all, that's almost guaranteed to set off a trigger of, of micro stress for you and for other people mm. because you haven't stopped to figure out the consequences of that. You haven't stopped to figure out, are you aligned? You haven't stopped to ask, where does this fit on the prior set, set of my other priorities? Um, I think that we're just so defaulting to, we're hanging on quick communication, that that just unnecessarily triggers that. So, so one of the practices that we saw people who were better at this doing was just stopping early on to make sure they're aligned with the person. So whether they're saying yes or not, if they say yes, they understand what's the ask, what's involved, how high a priority is it? 
do you care if this is going to move my other work aside to do that? Is that okay with you? It's having a communication about the implications of that. So again, being inquisitive, not, not necessarily being um, saying no to default, but it's just asking good questions can uh, at a minimum stop the, the misalignments that often lead to extra work and stress for each other or one of your colleagues letting you down a little bit. So, so being curious and inquisitive when an ask comes in mm. and scheduling your life in the way you talked about it so that you do keep those commitments to yourself that, that are really important to getting your own work done or, or whatever your own priorities are, rather than kind of constantly feeling like you're underwater from asks that are coming at you. I guess that example I gave as I think about it, it's real easy for me to do that when I work from home and nobody can can see what I'm doing at any given time. <laughs> Whereas if you're in an office, say, maybe that's a little bit more difficult to say, well, I've, I've got an appointment at that time. And then they see you at your desk, just you, <laughs> you know, or, or what have you. Um, are these things that you're, you're talking about sort of uh, getting into the kind of uh, the resilience factors that you talk about in the book, building resilience against micro stress in our lives, or are those sort of separate from this conversation that we're having? No, those are, that's a really great connection. That is really true. One of the things we learned from our research, so we identified high performers and we interviewed 300 of them, 300 people who were mm-hmm. identified by their own organizations, equal men and women. And most of them were kind of overwhelmed by the micro stress in their life. But a smaller subset, we started calling them the 10 percenters, were actually much better than the rest of us at mitigating and almost inoculating themselves against micro stress. And one of the things they did really well was see resilience not as something that they had to steal and strengthen themselves to deal with more and more. You know, talked about adding things to your day and even your wife, like saying yes to everything, being stronger to, to get through it and just say yes as often as you can. They were better at actually tapping other people to help them build resilience or find resilience. There's a great example in the book of a, a head of anesthesiology at a prestigious hospital who, during the pandemic, he and his team had to come in. You know, you couldn't phone in anesthesiology during the pandemic, and they were frightened for their lives. It was the beginning of the pandemic, and they didn't really know the consequences of what they were going into. And one of the ways he was able to get through that was not just being super strong and super heroic, but was tapping into the other people at work who he had already built nice relationships with to help him in small ways that enabled him to focus on the hard and important and scary work of being you know, in an operating room, not knowing what the effects of the pandemic would be. So it was another department head who helped lent him some staff to do some administrative tasks. It was a former boss who knew him well, who would just let him blow off a little bit of steam. That These interactions with other people can help us build resilience in ways that don't require us to do it all on our own. And they don't require us to unload all our burdens on them either. It's figuring out different kinds of ways we can be connected with other people who can help us build resilience that help some of those high performers get through difficult situations more easily than the rest of us. I read your reference to uh, studies that talk about the percentage of those who say we don't have a single close friend and that that group has, I think, quadrupled over the last uh, three decades, right? Talk about the critical nature of these kinds of, of close friend relationships. It's a really, I was looking at that, that data myself earlier today. It's really interesting because there's so much research out there now that will tell us that one of the single best determinants of a happy life is the nature of us having good, close relationships with people. So having more friends is, is correlated and causal maybe even with having being happy in our life and living a, a life, feeling like we're living a life well-led. But the reality for most of us is that with every decade, we just get so busy with work and family and home that some of those friendships just fall by the wayside. Some of those activities that we've done fall by the right wayside. And we spend, the data just is really clear, we spend more and more time alone 
the older we get. So that everything is sort of pushing against us being able to be connected to other people as we age. But even, even millennials are, are lonely. It's not even just a, an aging thing. We just are finding ourselves consumed with things, micro stresses, among other things, that just eat away our day and eat away the ability to be part of relationships that once were important to us. And, and I like to think of how animated uh, we were by our friendships in our 20s, for example. Most of us had great college friends, and it was kind of the person we wanted to be and how we sort of let that all slide over the years. But one of the things we learned from our research was, again, the people who were better at this just worked really hard to stay connected to those people or find ways to reconnect to those people or even lean into, we called them sort of small moments of connection with other people that just provided them with some almost inoculation to the micro stresses in their life. So other people, interactions with other people um, in meaningful ways, even if they're brief, are really important to building that resilience, to kind of keeping your overall physical well-being in a good place, and even helping you find purpose in your day. Um, don't have to be giant, huge time commitment things, but being connected to people outside of your family and at work is really important to building up your resilience to microstress. My wife always has a little mini celebration when I ask if it's okay if I go out and hang out with uh, some guy friends. <laughs> She's like, you don't do that enough. You need to continue building those, those close one-on-one friendships with other guys. So I'm trying to do that. But what I, was, I was just going to say that it doesn't, that can be overwhelming to say, give people the advice of, well, just go make time to make more friends or put more time into your friendships. Um, I, there, you know, there's a lot of data that tells us how much, I think it takes 120 hours to turn an acquaintance into a close friend. You know, th- those are huge commitments and that may feel overwhelming. But what we found in our research is even small moments of connection with people can provide you with some of those benefits. Being connected with friends is wonderful, but yeah. you don't have to be that person who's now turning you know, seven to 10 people that were acquaintances into really close friends. You can have interactions with those seven to 10 people on something that's meaningful to you. It could be um, you enjoy a kind of an art together and you're, or you're in a book club or you walk with people or it could be as simple as um, someone in our research just was in his yard every weekend on purpose because he was able to talk to his neighbors and mm-hmm. just share you know, life uh, and feel part of a community. So it can be smaller than that and still be very meaningful. But as you talked about, you know, your wife cheers you. I would cheer you too, because I think <laughs> making those connections and keeping them alive and, and keeping them nourished um, is not just a nice to have. It's really a need to have. You know, I'm fortunate to live in a neighborhood where the neighbors around us, we all know each other and keep tabs on each other. Now we've been here 20 years, so that probably doesn't hurt. It's, you know, so much so that, you know, I went out of my backyard to walk a couple of our dogs and a couple of neighborhood kids, one six, one four, saw me doing that and realized I was going to take a walk and were asking their mom, can we go with Mr. Jeff? Can we go with Mr. Jeff? And I'm halfway down the street and they run up to me and suddenly I've got company and, and people to help me walk my dogs. And we're having conversations and talking about life and, and the things that they do for fun. And it just, you know, I love living in this kind of neighborhood where uh, we have that trust among each other and we have those conversations and get to know each other enough that the relationships are deep enough that a parent would go, yeah, you can go off with Mr. Jeff around the block without my supervision. Sure. <laughs> go ahead. But but you found purpose in that, right? That's a, that's a, that's yeah. a great example of a kind of micro moment of purpose, right? In that moment, you were actually showing those kids something about the world or, or sharing the joy of your dog and connecting with them in some way. That's, that's what can kind of make a difference. You don't have to be a, you know, a teacher in an inner city school to feel like you're doing some really great good in the world. You can do it in these small moments too that probably make your day great. And then you see you, the rest of your day, you feel like a different person because you had that really nice connection with those kids and the parent in the morning. You know, so many in the work environment are working from home and haven't 
even gone back to the office yet, or maybe only going back to the office part time. And I know there are, are people in positions of leadership listening to this right now who are like, okay, this is all great if everybody's in person, but how do I work through some of these issues when some of my team or all of my team is you know, scattered about? Well, the pandemic definitely set a whole bunch of new problems in motion for many of us. I just think of the fact that even during the pandemic, we we're all able to be connected all the time because we all were on Zoom and on Zoom meetings and people in well-intentioned ways change. Let's just say the one hour meeting was replaced by a half hour meeting, right? Because we're not going to be so demanding of people's time when they're you know busy at work and pandemic and we've got a lot going on. But that meant that a really busy day for a lot of people used to be eight one-hour meetings. Now a really busy day for a lot of people are 16 half-hour meetings. And that means 16 sets of, of next steps and deliverables and opportunities for misalignment and moments to kind of misread people. And, you know, we don't have that human connection in the way that we can. Um, so we've kind of set ourselves up for um, some really challenging leadership and, and management issues. Um, I, I would actually say one of the first steps any leader should do is to do a sort of self, you know, self-assessment first, look in the mirror. Where am I causing my team micro stress? Not just what, you know, what are they likely experiencing, but where am I the source of it? Where am I the cause of it? Because I think micro stress, again, is never intentionally created. It's just the reality of how we work. But I bet if you do a sort of self-assessment, you can see that you are triggering micro stress for other people. When we talk to large groups of people about micro stress and we first ask them what forms of micro stress they're most commonly systemically uh, experiencing, and then we ask them which, where, what categories they think they may be causing for other people. They're almost always the same, meaning the ones that we feel we tend to pass on or we tend to, we tend to make other people's life more difficult without thinking about it. And it's not just a kind of good thing to do to try to take some of that back, but it's going to help you too, because it's it almost always rebounds on you in some way. It boomerangs back and, and the stress that you cause other people will end up coming back to you. For example, if you are filling the, the to-do list of one of your best employees with micro-stress requests and asks, eventually that person is going to be at risk or burn out or push back or become indifferent, and then you're going to be facing the consequences of that. So, so being aware of what you're causing other people is one. And I think just understanding the importance of Again, the small moments of connection. So maybe, so if we're all business all the time going, you know, meeting, 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 um, we don't have any of those opportunities to kind of connect with each other as human beings. And you can do that in small ways at work. Um, there was someone in our research who was, you know, top salesperson for an organization. He'd been there for a long time and he was feeling a little bit like he didn't believe in the mission as much anymore. It was selling a product that was fine, but it wasn't sort of the reason that he got out of bed in the morning. But he found a way to become kind of an informal mentor to some of the junior people where he was connecting them to the value of who they were helping with their products and services and helping them find ways to, to thrive in the organization. And that was enough of a human connection and a sense of purpose in his everyday work without changing very much that made a really big difference. So just building into to the, the life and schedule of your of your work environment, some human connections or opportunities to connect with each other outside of the specifics of work, I think is really important. And then assessing, again, what you're triggering and causing in ways that are having ripple effects for your whole organization. I haven't had an employee or direct report in almost 10 years. And I think the world said, hallelujah, no micro stress from Jeff in that regard. <laughs> 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 well, uh, Karen, what have you found uh, about the impact of our brains on, uh, you, you mentioned a little bit about, you know, 16, 30 minute meetings versus eight one hour meetings. What have you found about the impact on our brains of, of working late and early in the morning? 
well, our brains are, it makes sense, but it's the reality is true. Our brains get tired. And so a tired brain, when you're kind of continually layering, I'll just use the micro stress lens, layering micro stress beyond, you know, the, the working day and into the evening, you know, you don't think as well, you don't make as good decisions. It, it micro stress, what happens is that um, every, your body doesn't distinguish between different forms of stress. Stress is stress. And so if you go throughout your day layering one micro stress after the other, um, there, a neurologist that we talked about that it was a really apt metaphor described it as kids jumping on a bed. So you, you get one kid jumping on a bed and then two kids jumping on a bed and then you get up to 10 kids jumping on that bed. That's you coming home from work. You've had 10 kids jumping on your, on your bed in your mind. And then the 11th kid jumps on the bed once you get home. And that's just some micro stress that happens at home. You exchange curt words with your spouse or there was a, you know, a disagreement over who was supposed to do what. That 11th kid on your bed, on mentally on your bed is going to break the bed. It's just that, that extra stress. So you tend to come home not as your best self when you've had a full day of micro stress. And so, so often people that we love most are the ones who feel the effects of our micro stress. We're, we're not our best selves and we, we spew it onto them or we come home and just need to like let go of all the bad stuff that happened to us in the day and they just absorb it and maybe even reinforce it and it makes it worse for us. So, so a tired brain, a brain that's layered with micro stress throughout the day, you just, you, you're not creative. You're not going to make the right decisions. It, your frontal lobe literally sort of shrinks from all that stress. So late and early, um, is this not good for you in any way as an employee, as a human being, as a person in a family or a relationship? The, the negatives of that are really significant. So what I hear you saying is I picked the wrong day to have six Zoom meetings that range from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> no day should be that day. I mean, you know, we can't, this is the thing. We can't control them all, right? That's life. We all have jobs. We all have things yeah. we have to do. I, you can't, it would be nice to say, I'll have two and I'll have tea between them with my best <laughs> friend from college. And then I will go for a run with someone or take the dogs out for a walk. We can't. But one of the things we found in our research is that removing even just a couple of negatives in the day can make a really material impact. We're, we're, you know, this is lots of research that says that a negative experience or interaction has three to five times the impact of a positive one. So if we're all focused on adding positives, adding more friends, adding things that will help steal us for, for more stress, you know, meditation and mindfulness and those things, um, we're, we're chipping away at the problem, but we're not removing some of the big things that could make a material difference. So even if you just say, what two or three things can I change about my day, small things that might provide me with a little bit of oxygen psychologically, that could make a really big difference for you. So, so taking a couple of negatives away is going gonna, is gonna to change things in that maybe even a more obvious way than adding a few more positives in. You know, and I was only half joking a moment ago. I, I don't remember ever having in my entire life six Zoom meetings in a single day. I think uh, it's ironic that I picked today to be that day, <laughs> <laughs> talking with the author of The Micro Stress Effect. I don't know that we've hit on uh, dimensionality. Talk about the concept of dimensionality with regard to reducing microstress and, and how we can get better at implementing it. Sure. So that, that's another thing that we learned from our 10 percenters, that the people in our uh, research who were best at coping with or inoculating themselves really against microstress, not only were they better than most of us at pushing back on a couple of microstresses that had been baked into their lives and days, changing an interaction taking space to say no, et cetera. They were better at um, finding ways to make sure they weren't triggering microstress for other people. And the third thing they were good at is, is baking what we call um, dimensionality into their lives. And what we mean by that is being, finding authentic connections with just say two or three groups outside of work 
or uh, home life. Um, and the reason that's so important is because that's what we're talking about, being able to give your brain something else to think about, have different experience, put your own problems and day in perspective, sort of stimulate you with different kinds of conversations with people. It didn't mean, again, major commitments to huge other organizations. It could be somebody who goes bike riding with the same group of guy friends every weekend, or um, you join a, a local sort of political organization and attend meetings, or it could be as simple for these people as staying connected to their college friends with a really funny group chat that comes up every now and then. This dimensionality, the adding these dimensions to their life were really powerful ways to kind of not let the minutiae of micro stress kind of eat away at them because it helped them keep it all in perspective. So these people who were just naturally good at rising above were also naturally good at finding ways to make sure their life was not narrowly focused just on work and home as important as those are. As I said, it's back to the, it's not just a nice to have, it's a need to have. And, and they were better than the rest of us at finding ways to do that. Mm. I asked chat GPT the other day, uh, about micro stress. And I think you and, and, and Rob's jobs are safe because chat GPT didn't really know what micro stress was. <laughs> but <laughs> chat GPT did offer uh, some guidance on how you might combat this thing it didn't know much about. And number one on the list was, was meditation. So what of conventional wisdom? How do things like meditation and, and yoga play into in, into micro stress. Uh, do, do these kinds of things help manage it? They're good things. They're not bad things. They're very they're, they're certainly good things and they are helpful. Um, but but our kind of big point about it is is these are all things that help you take more, endure more, steal yourself to more. So you're not getting at the problem. You're only making yourself able to cope with more more of it. So not in any way disparaging. It's really important to a lot of people. People, some people are runners and they get in their zone, then those things are helpful. But but we think that you can find ways to actually change the context of some of the micro stress in your life. You can change your interaction. You can again find ways to push back. You can tap your own network to help you be resilient in small ways, in ways that remove a little bit of the negative rather than making you stronger for dealing with it. Well, let me ask before I go into a couple of questions, not directly related to the book, Karen, if I may, um, anything that I haven't asked you about the book that you wanted to make sure that we hit on or, or knew about? For me, um, this is very real phenomenon. It's, we, this, we came to this from looking at high performers, but as Rob and I were both working on the book, we recognize this in our own lives. You know, None of us are immune from it. And if you are a kind of natural high achiever or goal-oriented person, you're probably really <laughs> waiting in micro stress and just taking more and more of it. So for me personally, I really tried to begin practicing the things that we identified from the people who were better at this. And it's made a really material difference, including just making an effort to stay informally connected with some of my friends and being outside more so that you can chat with the neighbors. Those small things, actually, they sound so little, but they really can make a big difference in your day, your week, and, and on from there. So just the realness of this is, is something that feels very powerful to me personally as well. And as uh, someone whose spouse and I are helping a friend with their dog rescue and fostering in the meantime, Get yourself a dog and it'll get you out of the house more. <laughs> that's a double. That's a double good because it will get you out of the house more. But it's also you found some purpose in mm. that interaction, right? Being helping your friend with the dog rescue or being a dog rescuer. You, you can find purpose in small ways in your everyday life that are actually going to really boost you. It, you don't have to cure cancer or go you know, raise money for charity by climbing Mount Everest. You, you can do it in everyday life in a way that is going to be, again, a very powerful 
antidote to some of the micro stress. Uh, as someone who's written her own fair share of books and, and who I am sure is, is just a fan of books in general, uh, let me ask you a hard question to answer, but I'll ask it anyway. What is a book or two over the course of your life and career that really stands out to you as maybe, maybe one, Karen, that you find yourself recommending? I'll tell you the first, it's an interesting question because the first book that made me think differently about being a manager or being a leader is what someone gave to me when I was an intern in college. And it was a book that was really popular at the time called The One Minute Manager. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that book, but right. for me, the idea that just flipping through that and realizing this, it's kind of a good micro stress uh, point now that I think about it, mm-hmm. is finding small ways to connect or have an interaction with someone else that is going to make a difference in their day and their ability to be effective and their workload and, and the way they feel about themselves. Um, that was the first time I kind of had a real sense that management is really kind of a noble profession. You, you can mm-hmm. make people feel good about themselves and then they go home feeling good about themselves and they, their family has a great experience. The ripple effects of that, of being a good manager are really significant. You know, so often we don't think highly of managers and we talk about all the things they do wrong and people complain about them. <laughs> but the converse of that is you really can make a difference in people's lives in small ways and every day. So that book really affected me. I can't say that I haven't been affected by really all of Clay Christensen's books because I, I had the benefit of being able to kind of get a private course in them from working mm. with him on, on various projects over the years. So I just think he's such an original thinker. And what I saw him do so well was go from connect point A to point D and B and C were really logical and obvious. His mind went quickly to D, but then he here's the trick. He could explain it. So many people can go from A to D and you can't quite follow what they're saying. And therefore that idea is just fallen in a forest. If you can't follow the logic, you can't understand it. But he was great at seeing the A to D connection, but then helping you to see what B and C were along the way. He just was really great at helping you see things in a way that he was a teacher at, at, at his heart. Um, so all of Clay's work was really important to me. And then a book that I really think is powerful right now is is called Getting Along by Amy Gallo. It's basically a kind of great guidebook towards figuring out how to get along with everybody. You can't, you can't, you won't necessarily like them all, but you have to figure out a way to work with different people and people that you don't necessarily have good natural chemistry with. And it's just a really practical guide on working with challenging people, but still doing good work and work that you're proud of and not letting that kind of derail you in the process. I have an online course on personal knowledge management called Note Making Mastery, and it walks uh, students through the process of, of effectively collecting knowledge, uh, organizing and connecting new ideas to existing ideas, distilling that knowledge, uh, synthesizing that knowledge, and then taking these building blocks that, that you have over time and creating with those. And I love to ask this question of authors in particular who do their own fair amount of research, is maybe what some of your tricks or tips or best practices are for just managing your personal knowledge? It's a really good question, actually. I've gotten better at, there's a lot that goes on in my head, which is <laughs> a good thing because there's a lot of, that's where some of my best thinking and sometimes when I'm walking, I think of things. And I have a funny habit of my oldest daughter is getting her master's degree at Oxford right now. And she and I both do this funny thing of sending each other texts. We dictate texts where it's really just a way of getting our thoughts out 
So it'll be random, you know, this is causal mechanism of or whatever. And it's a really nice way of kind of seeing something going on in the other person's life. So I do that spontaneously. But um, I have a lot of tools that I use. I'm really into Notion right now. Do you know what Notion is? Oh, yeah. For me, like even just the, the ability to layer in things that I'm thinking about, deadlines, the original email, the original thought. I really like being able to kind of have something on my desktop that makes it really easy for me to keep track of various projects. And then I am an obsessive Dropbox user. Yeah. I have folders and subfolders and files and brainstorm sessions. I label everything by how I think of it, but you can recreate a lot of my thinking by going through, I think, fairly clearly labeled um, Dropbox folders and subfolders of projects. And um, I, I actually, in How Will You Measure Your Life in the Acknowledgement, I thanked Dropbox and that was way back in 2012. <laughs> and that came out because it had revolution, revolutionized my way of being able to think about things and save things and collaborate with people who weren't on the same time zone as I was. Um, so um, I am all in for the tools and um, I am all in for capturing the free thinking in some way, because I think that some of your, your most insightful stuff happens when you're not sitting at a desk or a computer and you need to find it probably better than texting my daughter. But I would welcome advice <laughs> on how do I capture some of my best thoughts when I'm walking mm-hmm. or driving or something like that. Uh, I do have some insight on that. A tool that you may want to check out is Oasis. And I'm trying to remember off the top of my head the the URL. I think it's theoasisapp.com. I'll find it and, and make sure I get you the right address. And I have it on my phone. And when I open Oasis, Oasis just has a little microphone button and instructions. It says, what are you trying to say? Speak like you would to a friend. Ramble as much as you want. Don't worry about sounding smart or polished. Just talk. And then before you talk, you can tell it in advance. I want you to take what you record and turn it into a LinkedIn post, an outline, a summary, a professional email, a text message, a blog post, ideas, Twitter thread, essay, song. <laughs> and it, in seconds, once you, once you stop talking or stop recording, it creates not only a transcript and or an outline of everything you've said and makes sense of it, but also instantly these other pieces of content should you choose instantly. And so to me, it's, it's been a really useful tool in particular when I'm walking the dogs or you know, otherwise out and about and, and have thoughts that I want to get down that are easier for me to speak in the moment. That, I love that. I love that. I'm going to check that out as soon as we hang up. That's one of the things. I, and I love the idea of all the output that can come from it. One of the things that I'm constantly trying to do, maybe this makes me an architect, I think, as, as you said, is is a storyboard in my mind. Like thoughts have to connect, you know, this and therefore. And that matters because, um, and that's something that I'm always sort of struggling with. And when I get to it, I feel great. And sometimes I get to it when I'm walking around the reservoir. So that's a really beautiful way to, to think about capturing that. And that also does something really nicely that I'm always um, advising people to do. There are a lot of people, especially academics, who um, hold themselves to such high standards. They almost can't get something down because they want it to be perfect. And they're great on their feet in the classroom. But when they sit to sort of writing something, it's just harder for them. And they they come to it from a really dense defensive, defensive everything place. And so what I often say to people is just pretend you're teaching a class. Just you know, talk about it. Talk about it. Capture it in some way. It doesn't have to be perfect. Get your thoughts out. And then you have something of a scratched first draft. You can start with that. Um, and that would be a really good tool for people who are suffering from a kind of block, you know, because they want to be perfect. Um, just get it out. And it's a different, the bar is lower, but that's okay. You, you get your thoughts out and then you can start to see what you have. Yeah. And then one of the things I love about the tool is that outline component that, that takes those ramblings and, and helps, you know, the AI helps make sense of it uh, in ways that maybe you didn't even realize as you were saying it. 
Um, and it, what you were just saying reminds me too, uh, uh, in a similar vein of, of the typical writer, which is me who wants to edit as they're writing rather than just writing and getting it out. Right. Yeah. I, I want to make it perfect the first time through. And it's very difficult for me to, when I'm writing to just let it go and worry about editing as a separate you know, session. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I uh, have really enjoyed talking. I could talk to you all day, not just about this book, but every other book <laughs> that you've written. But this one, the one we're talking about today, and I think you need to get is called The Micro Stress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems. And oh, by the way, what to do about it. Uh, her name is Karen Dillon. Karen, thank you so much for being here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. I'd love to have this conversation with you. You know, I've been a fan of Karen's for a long time, particularly the books she's co-authored with Clayton Christensen. Now I'm a fan of Rob Cross, too, because of the book she's co-written with him. I think you'll enjoy it. You'll find a link to the book we've talked about today, The Microstress Effect, at our show notes page. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 471 for episode 471. And that is also where you'll find links to the books and other resources she mentioned, as well as how to connect with Karen online, should you like to do that. Again, it's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 471. I encourage you, too, to consider joining the Read to Lead community. As I said earlier, it's absolutely free. You get all kinds of access to all kinds of content every week, including those weekly business book summaries. To sign up right now, just go to jeffbrown.me. Next week on the show, we welcome author Valerie Friedland. She makes an argument for something at first I wasn't sure I was willing to hear her out on. Her book is called Like Literally, Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. That's our topic next time. Again, the author, Valerie Friedland, when we come back together again for the Read to Lead podcast. If you've noticed my voice sounds a little weak, that's because for the last nine, now 10 days, I've been suffering with a virus. Thankfully, it's not prevented me from getting episodes out, but it did keep me down for a solid week. So I covet your prayers if you're the praying type, because I'm still not quite 100% as my voice would would make obvious. That does it for this week. Look forward to seeing you again next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.